Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm a president and Stephen B. Elmer, professor of Old Testament here at RTS, and I'm joined by our professor of New Testament and academic dean, Dr. Tommy Keene, also the author, also the author of the blog, Sign and Shadow. Go check that out. If you need more Keen in your life, which many do, he's actually been publishing quite a bit of late. So go check out. There's a lot of good material on there. That's signandshadow.com, right? That is correct. Okay. There we go. Um, also joined here by my professor of Old Testament and Dean of Students, Dr. Peter Lee, author of Unspeakable Joy, uh, a kind of biblical theology of suffering and how to approach suffering in Christ. It's an excellent book. I recommend it to anyone listening. Hey there, Dr. Lee. How are you? Good to see you, Scott. And thank you for the uh, push there. I'm trying to push everybody's. I need to, we need to start pushing each other's work more on this podcast. Yeah. And also Dr. Paul Jean, author of many works, mm-hmm. but uh, an upcoming work. <laughs> shelves, shelves of them. Shelves of them. Shelves we will be, uh, he's also pastor of New City Church, instructor of New Testament here at RTS Washington. And author of a topic that will be coming up on uh, here in the weeks ahead. We're going to actually do a reading guide on the pastoral epistles. And Dr. Jean has a multi-volume work on First Timothy and Second Timothy. And Titus. And Titus. Right. So check that work out if you want a in-depth commentary that will walk you through the deep things with a particular interest in the theology and the literary style of the pastoral epistles. Check out Dr. Paul Jean's work on them, published by Whitfenstock. All right, so let's continue on in our series on reading guides. We're diving now into a book of great interest in the world. This is one of those few books, maybe like the book of Ecclesiastes, that you might even read in your undergrad literature class, you know, your English class. I think I read Job at some point. Uh, it was thought that to be culturally literate, you needed to know the story of Job. And so we're going to dive into Job talking about, first of all, what is Job? What's, a, what's happening in the book of Job? Who are the characters there? And why is it of use? How is it of use to the church? Okay, it's an ancient book. It's in our Old Testaments. It's been around for a long time. And yet I think readers still come to it and sometimes get perplexed because it's not a book that goes the way you think it's going to go. Mm-hmm. So let's let's start off with Dr. Lee, our professor of Old Testament and teacher of poets and wisdom lit. And let's start off with this. First of all, let me put the question to you this way, Dr. Lee. What is Job about? Okay, just an elevator pitch on what Job is about. And I just said, I used a term wisdom literature to describe it. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, well, that, that's obviously a good question to ask. We um, uh, have been beginning our reading reading guides by quest- asking about questions like genre. And I think that's an important one to begin with. The The book of Job is a book of wisdom, an example of, old te- of ancient wisdom, not just Old Testament wisdom. So there are other uh, books like Job or ancient literary works like Job that you find in Egypt, um, Assyria, and in other places. Um, 
The, and I think that's helpful. People read Job, and I think the big question that people ask about is the problem of evil, because mm. that is an obvious theme. But but that's really not what Job is about. The, the book of Job is really about wisdom and specifically asking the question of who is wise. Uh, it uses the, the problem of evil question as the the arena to deal with that question right. of wisdom. Um, and and this question about evil or, or, or struggle or pain or suffering, especially uh, the idea of the righteous suffering, mm-hmm. is a perennial wisdom question that uh, we see not just in the book of Job. You have uh, examples of Psalms that deal with this. Uh, uh, Ecclesiastes will deal with this. Even it's sort of the background to even the Joseph narratives back right. in um, in um, in the Book of Genesis. And and instinctively, I think just intuitively, we ask that question just mm-hmm. as people that uh, that it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and I know you know there's been questions of late about whether or not this this rubric of wisdom literature is legitimate. And I know that discussion's gone kind of far and wide because I've had our students come in and ask me what I think about it, which is interesting. Anytime you hear a, a scholarly discussion kind of trickle into non-scholarly circles or more popular circles. And, you know, we can, with all genre, we have to remember that there are limitations. You can't, these people writing it are not automatons. They're not stuck in a genre. And there's often blurry lines around the genre and a lot of what's been attributed to wisdom literature, like finding theology, you know, it's kind of secular. It's it's not necessarily redemptive. Uh, it's 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 based out of creational theology as opposed to, for instance, the Word of God or Torah. And we have to recognize that that's that you can't treat those as hard and fast categories. That might be true of some texts, um, but in other ways, that might be kind of a modern imposition on on an ancient text. But there clearly is, as you point out, you have Psalms, you have Proverbs, you have Ecclesiastes and Job um, that seem to be teaching a kind of lesson that's different from a legal text, mm-hmm. right? And it, it's generally kind of thought of as skills for living unto God or something like that. And some of them are even drawing those skills out of the Torah, like Ben Sarah, you know, which is a non-biblical book, but in that intertestamental period that Augustine thought very highly of, you know, Ben Sarah is getting his wisdom out of Torah. That's where he's finding. He's not going to the ant, you sluggard, but he's going to Torah and he's finding wisdom there. And Job, I love the way you frame that. Job is asking the question, so what is what does true wisdom look like? And we have all of these offers of answers, right? In the form of these friends who are coming to Job and are sort of posing their questions to him. Peter, with that, maybe some of our listeners would ask, um, should we treat Job as a story that actually happens? Or is it simply like a pedagogical story like Aesop's fables? Yeah, that's a good question. It's um, it, And uh, I would. I think I'd, I'd just start off that way. I, I would take it as an actual historical figure, Job. He is uh, from the land of Uz, which is Edomite territory. So he th- that does seem to be the prominence of Job, that somehow this narrative has worked its way um, within, uh, within Israel. Um, uh, I, I do think there's some embellishment that is going on in in the Job narrative, but uh, uh, but but I don't um, necessarily uh, think that it reads as something that we should take as ah historical as just simply a fable. So I, I would take Job as an actual person, 
that there was a legendary narrative about Job that uh, worked its way uh, into Israel and uh, and made its way within within our canon. I don't know. What do you think, Dr. Red? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously got a lot of mystery around it. We don't know when it's written. We could look at language. That's about the closest we can come to. I mean, I, 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 I take leading scholars uh, who try to date it nowadays, and you look at them, and almost all of them will say we have no idea really <laughs> what when to date it. And it's and and I feel the same way. And it's not because of lack of reading on the topic or researching it. So it's hard to know who Job is. Uh, it, it's hard to know. Um, you know, exactly when it's written or what's the context. It seems as if the person who writes the story around the poetry um, is in Israel. He he uses the divine name. Uh, he refers to Job as being in the East, which is, of course, in that great tradition that we find uh, with King Solomon and elsewhere in the Old Testament, also in the New, of, of sort of wisdom men of the East. And Job is sort of counted as some kind of in there, depending on, it's hard to know exactly uh, what that refers to. Um, and like Peter, as you said, it's embellishment. I mean, I don't, I don't think the, these friends and Job were spontaneously producing prose, right? I think that's what you mean, right? And that's, you know, this is a, this is a poetic rendering of this disputation between them. And yet it does have all of these really odd details. It's kind of oddly specific, and even the names, like these aren't highly, obviously symbolic names mm -hmm. for the friends. Uh, and neither is it for Job. So while it doesn't, you know, it doesn't come to us in historical texts like Chronicles or Kings with all those markings of like in the third year of the reign of so-and-so, you know, in an obvious place. Um, it does have kind of hallmarks of, you know, a specific story and it's not a fairy tale. It's not, not a parable in that way. Yeah, we do have to recognize that the genre isn't such where it really locates it in a clear time and place. Um, but it also, I mean, the disputation, like all history, including Kings and Chronicles, as you'd say too, right, is constructed in such a way that it is teaching us a lesson. It's not just uh, somebody didn't just set a tape recorder out on a rock and record these conversations. This is teaching us something. And right. It's, it's teaching us what does wisdom look like. And so you have to say, even if it's, you know, some scholars say that you know even if it's history, you can account for history artistically, right? So it can have the feel of quote unquote fiction because it's artfully construed, right? It's not just like a recording. It's not a court stenographer, right? It's artfully construed. And yeah, you can say that and have it still be historical or essential history. I really like that idea of that you mentioned, Peter, like what is wisdom kind of looking behind the question of how do I deal with suffering to what does wisdom look like in the context of suffering? I, I warned you at the beginning, I was going to ask, why is Job so long? And when you, when you gave, when you said that something clicked into place for me, I, I think the problem with Job that, that I've always had as a reader, one is poetry is hard, but then two, just its sheer length the the basic narrative is pretty short, right? Two chapters at the beginning, and then I, the problem of pain, and then I fast forward to the end, and I get God's answer, done. Why all of this material in the middle? And what am I supposed to do with that as a reader, other than conclude that none of them could get it? Uh, you know, none of Job's friends really got it. The length has always been kind of an interpretive stumbling block. But if the question is, I get to see 
various proposals for what wisdom looks like, that that kind of unlocks the drama of that middle section, and uh, or does it? I, I'm I want to put I'm trying to put put it as a question for you. Like, help me unlock that middle section and the drama of the friends. You're you're thinking too highly of me here. I, I I don't know if I have a good response to the the question of the length, and it's not just the length, it's the rep, the the repeatedness, the repetition. It's mm-hmm. the same argument that is just being recycled in those narratives over and over. Now, um, what would that same argument? The be? basic yeah. argument seems to be. Um, uh, you know what Tremper Longman referred to, and I, it's not just Longman. I think just I, uh, commentators in general and Job is the is uh, retributive theology, retribution theology. The basic argument uh, that both Job and his three friends are working with is, um, you know, uh, if you are suffering, it's because you have sinned. If you have sinned, you will suffer. That seems to be the basic premise behind everything. Job's three friends think this way. For them, the solution is easy. You're suffering, you sinned, you just need to repent and everything will be fine. Uh, But Job is thinking the same exact way. But he uh, didn't sin, but he's suffering, therefore God is unjust. So for Job, the solution is a confrontation with God to basically tell him he's he's not just. But the premise, you see, is essentially the same, and the argument that both Job and his three friends are making is essentially the same thing over and over and over again. And it makes, um, I must confess, I, I have never preached through Job. I'm kind of cowardly. Uh, the uh, the repetitiveness kind of makes it tricky to know how, you know, how often can you say this, you know, from week to week to week if you're preaching through this. Secondly, uh, and and uh, Scott, Dr. Red mentioned it earlier, the, the Hebrew of Job, particularly chapters 3 to 38, or th- 41, excuse me, 3 to 41, is, is brutal. Um, every word practically is a one-time occurrence, which oh, means wow. we don't really know what these words are saying. Um, I think it was uh, David Noel Friedman in his commentary, the Anchor Bible commentary, where in one of the verses, in one of those sections, he, he just, and I'm summarizing here, he says, I don't know what this verse is saying, and he just moved on. Mm. And, um, you know, if someone like David Noel Friedman yeah. says that, then what hope do, you know, you know, uh, you know, peons like myself have uh, of trying to work through this thing? So. Well, I, I, I would say, I think that gets a little bit at the answer of the question of why is it so long too? Kind, kind of like Ecclesiastes, which is also a highly repetitive book and just keeps cycling through the same kind of observations about the world and slightly different, slightly changing each time. And you have this in Job. Um, yeah, they're all they're all saying the same thing, but it's really, it's almost like a deep study of this mm-hmm. particular wisdom tradition. And in many ways, what they're doing is, it's a critique, I think, it's in many ways of a, of a kind of Proverbs 1 through 9, if that's all you had was Proverbs 1 through 9, it would be kind of a critique of a simplistic notion of wisdom, where if you work hard, you'll do well. And if you don't work hard, or if you're a, you're a fool, then you'll descend down into Sheol, you know, kind of thing. And they're they're sort of critiquing, off, as Ecclesiastes does too, they're offering a corrective to a, a you know, a ham-fisted application of that. 
in a way, but they're doing it as extremely nuanced wisdom teachers. All of these, you know, Bildad Zophar and um, what was it, Eliphaz? The Eliphaz. Was, yeah, they, they, Elihu is the other one who comes in at the end. Who, Elihu is an interesting question in all of this, but they, they, they are very studied wisdom teachers, right? And they're pushing out every nook and cranny. So it's a really exhaustive disputation. You don't want to walk away. I, 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 when as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, you're not supposed to walk away from this and think, you know, they, if they'd just given this argument, they might have been able to convince him because they're yeah. feeling out every single one, you know? Yeah, I think that's what was really helpful to me when you said this is about what, what who is wise. Cause, and that, that angle of I'm doing a deep study here there's there's something that happens, like for example, in a formal debate, there's a drama to it, mm -hmm. right? To 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 a really good debate. I mean, I remember sitting in a couple of just really good debates, and the point wasn't to get to the right answer. The point was actually the drama of exploring the various possibilities and making sure that we've turned over all of the rocks and all of the mm -hmm. you know the permutations and and to see it. Um, it, you know, if you approach it, if you approach a debate at not as who won, but rather as this was an exploration of a deep study, as as you put it, Scott. I think that's really helpful, and it unlocks some of the the drama of the of the dialogue. I I, I was struck reading Job again about how funny some of the lines are. Like there's a rap battle kind of humor involved rap, rap in, <laughs> you know, like uh, Job in twelve one, you know. Uh, no doubt that uh, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. You know, like there's some real humor there that moves the story along. And, and you know, that that alone is like a subject I think we can address is the is the concept of humor in Scripture. Mm -hmm. And I think people are a little alarmed by that, that you can laugh. It's OK. It's actually there are portions of Scripture that are meant for you to laugh. And if you're not laughing, you're not getting it. But to your point. Uh, the way I've often seen is the the uh, initial uh, response in Job and his three friends is, I guess using it in more slangy terms, it's trash talking. Yeah. They're poking fun at each other's lack of wisdom, mm. and uh, it, which is sort of reinforcing the idea that uh, now we as readers know, you know, that both groups are completely off target. Uh, they both are absolutely sure, you know, Job versus his three friends are absolutely sure that they're right. And the way that each dialogue begins with this, with that kind of mm -hmm. volley, mm -hmm. you know, of, of, of sort of satire is, is funny because it's what it meant. It's meant to be funny. It's meant to make you, uh, laugh because they're poking fun at each other's lack of wisdom. And, um, and, and that could be part of the, re the reason for the length. I mean, after reading what, like like almost 35 chapters of this, mm -hmm. you know, it, you just sort of realize, um, it, it, you know, that uh, it, it's kind of funny, but it, it's utter, it's almost uh, an, uh, an act of futility. They're not getting it. You, they've exhausted every option. And, and yep. you perhaps need a good lengthy conversation to kind of show that the utter futility of this way of thinking. And, going back to Tommy's question then, you know, if there's a main repetitious point in the middle, but then Dr. Red mentioned like there are nuances too. What would what would you say are some helpful nuances that unfold even with the umbrella theme of like 
the retribution. Yeah, the that's a good point because I think I think that's the only way you can salvage uh, a Bible study or a sermon series through that mm-hmm. section there because it's so repetitive. Mm-hmm. The it's the the use of images will vary uh, from section to section. But will there be a different message or a angle that comes? Yeah, out a as little a bit. Uh, each will have its subtle little. Uh, uh, contribution, although the argument essentially is still you deserve uh, the it, same. Joe. Okay, you know, some will be a little like uh, of the three friends of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I think Zophar perhaps is a little more aggressive of the three. In fact, um, I was going to ask you if they had if they had personalities. Oh yeah, and who would who would you cast in the dramatization? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> y- you can almost kind of get, uh, and I've actually pictured it almost like an operatic. Kind of, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> volleying back and forth and uh, like that. arias versus aria type thing, and and uh, but Bildad, um, you know, Eliphaz perhaps is the most sim- is the most sympathetic initially, but he, he starts to break down. Yeah. Uh, uh, the third the third of the three, Zophar, seems to be the most irritated. In fact, um, you know, you have sort of you know Eliphaz, Job responds. Bildad, Job responds. Zophar. Job responds in three cycles of that. Mm-hmm. But by the third cycle, uh, the third friend, Zophar, has no response. It's like he's just sort of throwing his hands up in the air and just kind of mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. I've said what I need to say. I've said it twice before. I'm not going to say it a third time. And he just sort of mm-hmm. you know, disappears. That's interesting. <clears throat> there is, so there is a, a kind of narrative shape to, to it all. You get an intensity, yeah, a moral uh, frustration yeah. as you're moving along. Yeah. You know, So I guess from a systematic standpoint it's the same argument over and over again uh the the coloration the images the intensity kind of grows um and you kind of get that sense of frustration in both job and these three friends you're just you're not listening to what i have to say you know you you really are not that smart that's super helpful because like to tommy's original question like if it were simply a point that's being made um then yeah it could be much shorter but it's almost like the text wants us to experience different facets of this truth, like mm-hmm. of the truth. And that's actually, I think, when it comes to this topic. And I know you said it's not about suffering, but I think experiencing their dialogue could be an important feature of this text. There is a, you know, um, there, there are still uh, Christian counselors, you know, who do presume that the suffering you are going through is because of a sin and unrepentance and. Um, I mean, if there's an, ever a book in the Bible that wants to obliterate that kind of simplistic mm. way of thinking, I mean, here it is. I mean, um, you know, and and have both Job and his three friends bought into that idea, mm. and they're all wrong. You yeah. know, it's it and that's the and I think that's the unnerving thing about the Book of Job is it is very possible to do everything right and still suffer. And that's a little jarring for us, but it is a uh, it is a real possibility. And here is a you know picture in the Old Testament of exactly that. It's very not Deuteronomic, right? Deuteronomy says, "Here are the laws. Here are the blessings if you obey. Here are the curses if you disobey." That's logic. That's right. That is order. This is just utterly not like that. So, so while we're on the friends. And before we get to the end, um, Elihu, which I think is hilarious, but how does Elihu fit in? Well, I don't know, Dr. Red, what do you think? Yeah, 
Elihu. Sorry. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> just, I'm just a lowly New Testament guy. Agreed. Uh, Elihu, yeah, is the one who is interesting because he gives his series of discourses and is not responded to um, in the sense, in the way that the other friends are. Some people take them, of course, as an addition. There are those who would, who would see that as the obvious kind of conclusion from that. Um, others read them a little, you know, I think a little bit more like, no, this is, this fits in. It's kind of a culmination of the friends arguments. Some people hold that Elihu basically steps in and offers, um, sort of a summary statement of the other friends. He's another person who's come along and, and watched this debate and now reflects on it. And he, he, he talks about how he's reflecting on the previous discussion. Um, some people argue that his is the positive mm -hmm. take on it. And the fact that he's not rebuked right? He's not rebuked at the end. Um, is that he's actually the right way you're supposed to think about it. Mm. Um, though that's not super convincing to me. It seems, he seems to me to be in line with the other conversation partners. Now, why literally, so and also let me just a little bit as we've been talking about like the repetition and the nuance, I don't think it's necessarily also nuance of like different arguments it's a poetic nuance, right? Mm -hmm. You're learning about wisdom as they're having this dialogue. And he acts, he offers a kind of culmination of the argument, Elihu, because he shows in there, he shows up at the very end, and then boom, we go right into the Lord's responses to Job. Okay, so he's kind of a culmination of the argument, while not necessarily. You know, without necessarily being like the, uh, he's, he's, not, he's not the positive take or the right way you're supposed to think about it. But it's a good question. He was kind of a complicated person. Yeah, I, there's, there's a couple of sections, by the way, I have to say with, with as you mentioned earlier, commentators will say, we, we're not sure what to do with this passage in Job because it really is difficult. And it's hard to see how he relates to the previous friends, but I don't see him as a major departure. He is a little bit more, he has kind of the air of when you're reading him, you go, okay, this guy might be on the right track. You know, he feels like he's a little more humble. He's a little more kind of appreciative perhaps of Job. I, I kind of always read him as that guy at Presbytery. Who, like every, you know, everything's <laughs> been said, but not said by everybody. Yeah. And so he gets up at the end and kind of rebukes everybody. But mm -hmm. for the ends up saying exactly the same thing that's already been said. Yeah, yeah. That guy's been around for a long time. And then, the and then God stands up and says, I'm going to call the question. Yeah. But why, well, how would you then respond to, like, is, why isn't he rebuked then? Do you think it's just... I, yeah, I, I, again, it's one of the mysteries of the Book of Job, but I agree with uh, with Scott I, I, and with what you were saying, Tommy. The the argument of Elihu mm -hmm. is essentially the yeah, same, same argument. It's built on this sort of retributive understanding of life in a simplistic way, and 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 I, and, uh, I kind of you know I find it funny the way he starts. You know, I listen to you old guys talk. Now listen to the young guy. Yeah. He's sort of the millennial of his generation. I've got okay. the answer. Be nice. Be nice. <laughs> we are thankful for all our. We're thankful millennial. for all our millennials. All our yes. He's the young guy. Perspective uh, does not represent. <laughs> and and he says the same thing. I'd kind of go back and forth a little bit on Elihu because there are elements that seems to anticipate the whirlwind narratives that starts in thirty-eight. Mm -hmm. Like he's a setup for that. Yep. And uh, so I, it's hard to know how to evaluate him. Is he is he just like the other three? Or is he sort of a precursor 
to and and setting up for what's you know job asked for it he wanted a dialogue with god he wanted an audience with god you ask you want it you get it and that's what's setting up for you know the big entry into 38 and so forth but but at, at the end of the day, I, I don't think he contributed. And that's one of the mysterious things about, you know, why is he not one of the, he's not one of the four friends or three friends. He's not a friend of Job. Uh, the, the dialogue that Job oh. and his three friends seem to be having is sort of public because <clears throat> people are kind of listening in. He's one of them. And he thinks that he has something new to contribute when he doesn't really have anything new to contribute at all. It's the same argument. And the narrator does step in about Elihu when Elihu gets introduced. And first of all, to that point about historicity, it does, it's oddly specific who Elihu is. It gives his family line. It gives the town that he's from. But then it says that he burns in anger against Job because Job had not justified, had not sort of honored God. So it shows that he's kind of in the same, he is in the same stance. And that's the narrator stepping in, telling us that he's also judging Job, as it were. So those last couple of chapters where God, the whirlwind narrative, I'm now kind of reading them now of, of all, you know, if you read them as what is the solution to the problem of pain, which is a valid reading, a certain kind of answer comes out. But if the question is actually who is wise, what's our, what's our answer? Where, where are we headed? What's the telos of, of the book? Well, one thing we have to point out is that we actually haven't talked about the frame that much. We did before we started recording, yeah, but we yeah. haven't talked about yeah. it. So the interesting thing is that this whole frame, right, of the prologue and the epilogue where it, that takes place in heaven, where God is holding his divine assembly and the, the Satan, the adversary, comes in and bears witness to the events that are taking place. And, they, and God says, if you consider Job and Satan says, or the Satan says, uh, oh, it's just because you've given him so much. If you took that away from him, he wouldn't be as righteous as you think he is. And then the end of the story, where now after the testing, Job has persisted, he's persevered, and now he's given blessings beyond what he even had before. The interesting thing about that frame, of course, right, is that that never shows up in the dialogues. God doesn't even mention it when God comes and offers his theodicy, right? He, he offers his, 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 uh, his response to Job. He never comments on actually what was going on behind the scenes. Job never learns why all of this was happening. Okay, so you have to also, as we talk about this before, I think before we jump into the Lord's response, we just have to recognize that there's this whole thing going on in the background that actually never leaves heaven, mm -hmm. right? It only is happening in the divine council and never actually gets communicated to the sufferer on earth. That, and that does seem to be very profound. I mean, he could have done that. Mm -hmm. You know, here's Job demanding an audience. He gets it. And the Lord could have explained to him the whole uh, set up in a narrative um and he doesn't do that uh what he does in chapters 38 and following is give this just uh, just amazing portrayal of god as creator mm -hmm. and he really goes to creation in a way to humble job you know uh you have spent the last 40 chapters or so um saying that i am not just i that is god am not just and that your suffering is unjust, but but you know I am Creator, you are creature, you know sort of that that very strong creator creature distinction, 
uh, to challenge Job's wisdom that you think you're wise, you really are not, because I am creator. And uh, and so what can you really say any about life at all? You know, uh, you weren't there when I created the heavens and the earth. You weren't there when the mountain goat was giving birth to uh, to its calf. You weren't there when I created, you know, a, a, a creation as it is. Um, you know, I, I act, there's wisdom here. The the ostrich is, you know, is is uh, is is prey, but that's the reason why I gave him speed. You know, mm-hmm. there is a rationale to the way that things happened, and Job really should have known better. It to me is always interesting, um, it, especially in light of our uh, large Reformed Presbyterian dialogues on Genesis one and creation interpretations, and how boldly we have schools of thought that hold to a certain view in a very uncharitable way at times to others um, when in fact uh, when the Lord wanted to humble Job with what he didn't know mm-hmm. he goes exactly to creation yeah. Yeah. you know now there are things we can know you know he, uh, the Lord created from nothing he is creator uh, he created us in image there are certain non-negotiables but within that context there's so much that we don't know and so I do find it ironic the biblical posture towards creation and God as creator and his act of creation um, is uh, is something that we can hold to in terms of certain non-negotiables, yeah. but there's mm-hmm. a lot we don't know. And if you really think about it, it's it's an area that the Lord used in the case of Job to humble him yeah. about what you don't know. It's you don't great know mystery. anything. Yeah. yeah, but that's one of the great things about this book. Like, Pierre, I think you've hit so well. Like, it's really getting at this basic idea that so many people struggle with like at the end of the day there's so much we don't know and god is not obligated to tell us anything because of the creator creature distinction and so i have found that to be i don't know if that's the main takeaway from job but that is so immensely helpful and i think it ties in with the theme of wisdom that's wisdom seeing that god felt no obligation to tell him of like this heavenly wager if i can use that right right in the day he says job there's a lot you don't know and you know what's so great about job not really but it's really um (laughs) i think it's really helpful basically i think i the way i read the text has always been god basically says like shut your mouth like you know and um it's very interesting he doesn't coddle him which would be now granted this isn't the only way the bible approaches suffering but there's something to that that i think is worth uh you know, I've, I've I've often wondered what you know had the Lord told Job, you know, you know, we, yeah, that's we a great really question. Know. Yeah. It, you yeah. know, what? In other words, the 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 comfort that we draw from the suffering, the righteous suffering, mm-hmm. you know, you did everything right, you're suffering still nonetheless. Um, I mean, uh, is what you need in a situation like that uh, an explanation? I mean, if he was given an explanation, that's great, but is that really going to help Job? Yeah. What, what do you need in a situation like that? I mean, what is the ultimate real source of uh, stability and a foundation in, in, a, in a crisis like this is not an explanation of why you're going. We think we need to know that, but we really don't. What we need is God. Yeah. And that seems to be yeah. kind of the end point here of Joe. What, I can explain it to you, but it's not going to help you. You think you need to know this, and I know you want to know this. But you don't. What you need is to trust in me. And uh, the, the book of Job sort of ends, it seems, with a strong kind of exclamatory 
for the reasons that we were just talking about, Job was not told about the prologue dialogue in, mm -hmm. in heaven between the Lord and and the Satan figure. The uh, and perhaps the reason why is because he doesn't need to know. You know, it, again, that it's a question of wisdom here in a, in a in a crisis situation of suffering. What is the wise thing that you need to do? Where, where's yeah. the word of, uh, yeah. you know, instead of getting caught up with the questions of right or wrong, which is what sort of Job and his friends are doing, maybe there's a different question. Yeah. And so. Yeah. This, if if God had answered the question, it would short circuit the need for faith. There would there would be no uh, occasion for that. I live by faith, not by sight. Um, and I think of First Peter one seven there that. We're to count it all joy when we face trials, but not because the trials are actually good, not not in a way that would nullify the need and the and the yeah the need to lament. Are we're to rejoice because this is an opportunity to see the tested genuineness of faith that that our faith is protecting us, yeah. guiding us for a glory yet yet to be revealed. There is a you know similar psalm. Uh, a Job, there, there are a couple of Job-like psalms, mm -hmm. and one of them is Psalm 73, that's essentially dealing with the same type of, you know, the psalmist is looking at the wicked, and they're rich and healthy and living great lives. He looks at his life as the innocent, and he's suffering and, mm -hmm. and struggling and impoverished, and, you know, essentially it's the book of Job, and, and, and then that you have that great moment in Psalm 73 where he says that, you know, I entered the sanctuary of God, then everything clicked. And then, you know, Psalm 73 ends with that great picture, you know, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire but you. That God is his portion. You see, the solution there is not, all right, now I'm, I get it. Mm -hmm. You know, now it's, yeah. it's, it's not like now I've got the stuff. It's not like even when I go to glory, now I'll have riches and and it, that's not the the solution is the fact that you know he has the lord and that does seem to me very meaningful and 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 profound the wicked doesn't have god i guess you know that's sort of the question right i mean we talk about our covenantal communion with god we talk about it all the time as pastors as as professors and we talk about it with our families but do we really mean it i mean at the end of the day you know we as the people of God have God. The wicked do not. That should be pretty darn significant. And um Yeah, and, have, and how much more powerful is that theology when we see yeah. Jesus who would sympathize with us in all our weaknesses, who would experience pain in every way as we we have, yet without sin, and we have him, we have Christ who and I think the the timing in the end of Job is significant, the because it's weird. Again, these are just some one, the many uh, 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 questions that you kind of have to hurdle. You you know, um, Job did not sin, but he's suffering. His friends are telling him, "If you repent, you sin. Be you're suffering because you sinned. If you repent, then God will give your goodies back." At the end of the book of Job, Job repents and he gets his goodies back. <laughs> so it looks like the friends were right, but we know they're not. You know, so how does you know it? It's just weird. How do you kind of resolve this? And um, well, I always thought that they were talking about something different in terms of repentance, right? Like, like so they were saying, 
your suffering now because of a sin you committed previously, whereas when God calls him to repent, it's because of the way he's handling his suffering. I think yeah. so. I mean, yeah. again, it's it's this, this is the thing that makes the book of Job kind of fun and really challenging is is to deal with exactly these types of questions. But I agree. I think you have two Jobs, in other words. You've got the Job of one and two, who's this sort of rock foundation. You know, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord type guy. Then you have the Job of three and on, which is a a deteriorating Job. You know, he started off great, but he's he's breaking down the the the, the 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 constant you know pain the constant sense of uh yeah of a false you know uh, uh uh righteousness or you know that's starting to wear at him where he starts to you know say things that I don't think we'd want to say I'm I'm totally right God is wrong mm. in fact even the fear of God concept in that middle section of Job is kind of like God is a bully type fear of God not the healthy Proverbs fear of God and um, you know, he can, it's almost like a Islamic doctrine of God. You know, he's the kind of uber sovereign who can do anything he wants, even violate his own, uh, attributes because he is God. And, 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 uh, and that's not, that's not it. And, and so, so I do think you're right. The, the repentance of Job is not the repentance that was the initial cause of his, his, his suffering. The repentance of Job is a repentance of the Job that, that, began to deteriorate, never gave up, uh, but that began to really challenge kind of the, uh, the, the, the authority of God at, towards the end. The, it does seem to me important that Job comes to that realization, you know, that, um, that I do need God, that God alone is, is worthy of, of life, then his stuff is restored. Because if his stuff was restored, then he came to that realization. You've never really resolved the question. Did, does he really love God for God? Or did he love God because all his goodies are back? Uh, but now you know at the end, his all his stuff was all taken away. He was just sort of forged through the fires of trials, false words of comfort, false counsel. And through all of that, he uh, was able to wither through and actually embrace God for God. Had nothing changed, he still would have been content. I think that's the idea. Well, one so. of my profs, uh, Bruce Walk, used to argue that, uh, that that Job shows a development in wisdom. It's, it's an mm -hmm. education. It's like the re-education of Job of us or something. You know, it's He starts off with wisdom, but it's wisdom couched in plenty. He ends with wisdom, but it's wisdom that is experienced, yeah. right? That's, that's suffered. And I think that's something, as we're reading these the, this dialogue of Job crying out, first of all, there's this existential aspect to it. We read it and we realize this is, yeah, I've, I've been there. I felt this way. I suffer. I don't know why. Um, but on top of that, it's this reminder that, yeah, you there are, I mean, we know people like this. You know people who are wise in their wealth. And that could be wealth of finances. It could be wealth of anything in life, physical health. And yet, you learn a new kind of wisdom, right? You 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 progress in suffering too. And I, it, the book isn't saying that's the point of the suffering. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say that, but we do see that happen. Job is wiser after his after his trial than he is before, as he gives expression to in his final discourse. You know, he says, "Now I know, now I know what it means for you to be Creator and Lord," and. 
you know, that's an important thing for us to remember too in life. Uh, you can always grow in wisdom, right? We can always grow and be perfected in wisdom and um, wisdom that comes easily is not a fully formed wisdom. You know, the ending of Job has always um, fascinated me because um, this is probably a heretical reading, but I was always confounded or I was wondering whether Job was really uh, restored or comforted because he gets 10 more children, but he doesn't get like his original children, you might say. And um, I was, I'm always reminded of this conversation like with, cause I know people who have lost their children and they say, you know, other children like, yeah, bring comfort, but they don't really actually like uh, replace the other children. So I sometimes wonder if that little detail, this is probably reading too much into text, reminds us that even when Job was comforted to some degree on earth, there was still an element mm -hmm. of future restoration that even he anticipated. You know, if anything, like his children probably reminded him, his new children probably reminded him of his old children. So that, that was just part of the ending that I've always just wondered about. Yeah, I don't think that's heretical, but I also, I don't, it might be reading. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is an ancient text. I yeah. think all they're saying is, and look, it turned out okay. Yeah, yeah, it turned out okay. So, <laughs> Into the yeah, story. So that, that's what I mean. You know, like it's kind of the, yeah, the story ends and there, and there he's been now restored and things are made okay again. But I don't, but to your point, it's not saying, and look, now he forgot all about his yeah, suffering. Yeah, yeah. It's no, no, all no, no, better than it was before. But it's before. just, that's why it's, it's no, you're making an it, element I'm introducing that it's probably, it's not intended, yeah. but I couldn't help but well, just it, think about as that. As soon as we think, yeah, if someone yeah. killed your child and then yeah. said, but look, here's another one. Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't go, oh, okay, cool. That's yeah. all right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think you're right. I mean, and I think that's also part of the reason why we're not supposed to read it as, you know, if you just suffer right, you'll get yeah. everything you want and more. So... Good discussion, friends. Uh, thanks for being a part of this, and I look forward to continuing these in the future. This is a book we haven't even begun to talk about the Book of Job over the last hour, but we've 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 got some, we've got the beginnings maybe of a conversation. Um, it's been great to be a part of this with you all. Look forward to it, uh, continuing it in the future. Until then, take care. sound works but this will help the only other thing we need to do obviously is get something for these windows so we're talking about just getting some curtains <coughs> that we can hang curtains might be the best way to diffuse sound <coughs> sorry <laughs> you okay you okay tommy i'm trying to hold back a cough it kept, it kept just getting worse and worse <clears throat> timo you're welcome <laughs> All right. All right.
So Job. Job it is. Uh, 